It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Door-to-door urban conflict, what the IDF may soon encounter in Gaza, with a man who won the American Medal of Honor for Urban Warfare in Fallujah, David Bellavia. It's the Will Kane Podcast on Fox News Podcast. What's up? And welcome to Monday. As always, I hope you will download, rate, and review this podcast wherever you get your audio entertainment, at Apple, Spotify, or at Fox News Podcast. You can watch the Will Kane podcast on YouTube and follow me on X at Will Kane. A lot of great feedback last week for the coverage we had for the war in Israel. The debate we had between Dave Smith and Ben Dominich, our deep dive conversation with Heritage's Robert Greenway, and my 10 takeaways at that stage of this war. I hope you will share this podcast with your friend, including this episode here today, which I believe you will not just come away from with an understanding of what's happening literally on the ground in current events in Gaza, not just come away from it with an understanding of urban warfare, but you'll come away from it with an understanding of a warrior and how it applies to being a citizen of America and what it reveals deep inside about all of us and humanity. I think you're going to really not just appreciate, but find this wisdom insightful with David Bellavia, and I hope you will take the time to share it with more Americans. David Bellavia was in Army Army Infantry in 2004 on his 29th birthday as a member of Company A Task Force 2-2 1st Infantry Division. Bellavia's platoon was assigned during Operation Phantom Fury to clear a block of 12 buildings from which insurgents in Fallujah, Iraq, were firing on American forces. I'm going to read from his Wikipedia page so you understand exactly what this man did for the United States of America. The platoon began, it reads, began began a searching house to house at the 10th house, Bellavia fatally shot an insurgent preparing to launch load a rocket-propelled grenade. A second insurgent fired at him, and Bellavia wounded him in the shoulder. When Staff Sergeant Bellavia entered a bedroom, the wounded insurgent followed, forcing Bellavia to kill him. When another insurgent began firing from upstairs, Bellavia returned fire and killed him. A fourth insurgent then jumped out of a closet in the bedroom, yelling and firing his weapon as he leaped over a bed to try and reach Bellavia. The insurgent tripped, and Bellavia wounded him. Bellavia then chased the insurgent when he ran upstairs. Following the wounded insurgent's bloody footprints to a room on the left and threw in a, threw in a fragmentation grenade. Upon entering the room, Bellavia discovered it was filled with propane tanks and plastic explosives. He did not fire his weapon for fear of setting off an explosion and instead then engaged in hand-to-hand combat with the insurgent, which led to Bellavia killing him by stabbing him in the collarbone. 
That incident was documented in a November 22nd, 2004 Time Magazine cover story, Into the Hot Zone, by journalist Michael Ware. On June 7th, 2019, Bellavia's Silver Star, which he earned for that battle, was upgraded to the Medal of Honor. He was presented the Medal of Honor by President Donald Trump. David Bellavia has written a book, which you should check out for the full story of this hero. It's called Remember the Ramrods, An Army Brotherhood in War and Peace. Check out that by David Bellavia. But today he joins us here on the Will Came Podcast to talk not just about his personal story and his takeaway from battle, but also what could soon be expected to take place right there in urban warfare in Gaza with the Israeli military. Here is David Bellavia. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, Fox News contributor and editor of the Transom.com daily newsletter. And I'm inviting you to join a conversation every week. It's the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Medal of Honor winner, David Bellavia. I don't know that I've ever, I get to see you in the green room. I get to see you, you know, on the edges of a television show, but. You're pretty much dominated by Pete Hegseth. That was until yesterday morning. I got to interview you, but it's, you know, I, I don't know if there's some kind of list behind the scenes. I know I know there's some generals that only want to speak to Pete. I don't know what I've said to offend them. And it may be that, you know, you have done the same thing, but this is the first time I've really gotten to speak to David Bellavia. Well, I will, I will say that I like you much better than Pete, number one. <laughs> Personally, I respect you more. It's it is it is that crazy thing though that I, I don't think we went to West Point and uh, we were doing a thing in, in the rain. And one of the things that I was I was really impressed with is just there are so many people that see like young young folks that want to join the military today with all the chaos and crazy. Those are like patriots on you know times ten. Because, you know, for us, 9-11 was a huge reason why we all wanted to do it. We're at war. These kids have really no reason to do it other than they love their country and they want to defend our way of life. So that was cool that we got to experience West Point together. Yeah, you're talking about a year ago. We did the 4th of July special from West Point. It was my first time to West Point. It was awesome. And I took my sons to that trip because... You know, honestly, David, I didn't grow up in a military family. I mean, my father grew up in the Vietnam era, so he was in... He, he was in the reserves and everyone from that age had some perspective on the military, but I didn't grow up with service as part of my family history. And um, I, I don't I don't want to pass that on in a way. I, I wanted my sons to see it and I wanted them mm. to consider it. And ultimately, it's their choice. But I wanted them to see, you know, West Point. I'd love for them to see the Naval Academy. I'd love for them to consider that path in life. And you brought up the the. Yeah, I know a lot of guys in the the age range that you and I are who chose to to join after 9-11, but you, you chose before. Didn't you join in 99? Yes, I did. I was a, uh, yeah, I was really disturbed by what was, was going on in the Cola Wars, and uh, <laughs> I, needed to, I needed to get involved. No, I mean, it was, um, my granddad is still alive. He's 103, and he's a Normandy vet. Uh, he's a D-Day plus 29 guy, so he came in with Patton. Uh, after the D-Day, uh, but but he was he would tell me stories as a little boy that there was nobility and and that I would not really understand what it was 
to truly be an individual in my community unless I did it with people that were different than me. Rich kids, poor kids, black kids, white kids, you know, people from all different backgrounds. You know, it's so funny when you get like the what the, when civilians talk about, you know, all the issues with the military and you're in the military. Sometimes you like, you know, you turn on the news and you're like, what are we talking about? I mean, all the things that that people get conflicted with. There is something really special about every cliche we have. But you're a sports guy. Everything we talk about is about war. Who do you want to be in the trench with, Will? You know, yeah. we fight for each other. When you actually get to do that and say that, it's one of the greatest. War is hell. And and you lose definitely part of your of your soul when you're out there, you know, hunting and, and killing. There's there's That's not what we're put on this earth to do. I, I will be totally upfront and tell you it's a dark, dark spot. However, I never thought I would see love like I saw on a battlefield. And I never thought I'd, I'd see really what the human condition is. When you see people sacrifice for each other, it's impossible not to be, you're changed forever, but I think you're changed for the good. I think you're a better person and a better father, a better citizen. You know, I, I don't, I don't want to draw, analogies are always rough because people say, uh, how dare you compare X to Y. But what you just described strikes me as um, eye-opening, but also unsurprising. You know, these are not two direct comparisons. I, you know, I've spent the last two months of my life, like, in Maui several times, dedicating a lot of my time to what was really horrific, what happened in Maui, where, you know, I don't know, 120 right. people are dead and the entire town is gone. But David, my takeaway from that story and what I saw was the sense, the deep sense of community. In the end, it was a really negative thing that actually the biggest story for me was a positive. You just saw so many parts of humanity that would not be have been revealed but for the tragedy. And I think for anybody at home, I, I mean, look, I don't know who we've lost in our lives and everyone listening. My father died at a very a young age for him and a young age for me. And, and again, that is a negativity in your life. But what if your eyes are closed, if you don't then in turn see the positivity of the, the neighbor that shows up with a casserole, of the community that rallies around you. And so when you say you saw love on a battlefield, in a way, yeah, I don't spend enough time thinking about that. But I'm also somewhat unsurprised that's one of the things that you've grown to, to that, that's, that's, that's something that's, that's a wisdom that was revealed through war. It was. Um, and, and now, get, don't get me wrong. I would have much rather have experienced it you know, in college you know, I mean, or, or yes. somewhere else. But but there is there is a sense of I, I got what my granddad was talking about. And I understood that. And, and and so now I believe there's a responsibility that once you see something and you realize, look, I mean, this is all about this generational fight. Hamas, Hezbollah. This is about, do we want our children and our grandchildren cracking each other in the heads like this? Is there a way that we can exist without the fear and loathing that we currently have today? Muslims, Jews, and Christians have not, there, there were times when we've been at war based solely on our religion, but there's also been times of peace. And there, there are regions of this world where People of all different faiths live together and live in peace. And that used to be America. And for some reason, we have folks that, that almost want to grow this cacophony of just chaos and hatred. 
And that to me is the most telling of anything that's come out of this story is just the way the, the, the domestic United States and the rest of Europe have, uh, have, have embraced Hamas. I mean, Will, I get the sense that if Hamas did not invade southern Israel, that we would have people in our State Department today that would say we should have, you know, diplomatic relations with Hamas. That there's nothing wrong with Hamas. That Hamas is not a terrorist group. That we just don't understand them. You know, I, I mean, it's it, it, it took this slaughter uh, to, to finally identify Hezbollah, Hamas, and Iran for, for who, they're, uh, who, who, who they are. Yeah, and I have a lot of opinions on why that is, that there's been this moral equivalency or this the, these blinders pulled over, not just college kids. That's the that's maybe the most egregious or obvious example that we've seen, American college campuses, but how that then turns into high levels of American government. I have a lot of opinions on how we get to that place, but you're right. It's been laid bare because of this horrific this horrific slaughter. So listen, one, I, you, you are uh, – I've been around you enough to know like – Smart is smart is like almost an, an interesting compliment. I think that life or or whatever has given you wisdom, and so that's what's really fascinating. But you also have direct experience in in talking about what we may see soon see go down in in Gaza, and and everyone has described um, the coming ground invasion by the Israeli military into Gaza as a horrific hornet's nest of urban warfare. Underneath the ground, above the ground, apartment buildings. And, and look, man, you won the Medal of Honor for, at least in modern America, the biggest corollary we have for urban warfare, and that is Fallujah. Um, so, I mean, I've read some of your story, David, but I, I would, to the extent that you, you want to here today, I'm sure you give speeches on it. I know you've written a book on it. You know, like, what did you experience in Fallujah, and what does that tell you about what we're about to experience in Gaza? So we pride ourselves by being the greatest military on earth because, you know, somehow we've evolved combat that we can use laser guided bombs and thermal imaging and satellites. And uh, that was supposed to evolve combat in the sense that it wouldn't be grisly and barbaric and up close. And yet the enemy is going to want to neutralize your technology. And they do that by bringing you into a close quarter environment. And you know, if you've lived in New York or any large city, real estate's tough. Cities aren't growing wider, they're growing taller. And and the the larger the population bases are, everything is dangerous. I mean, if, if I cleared a wood line and there was a big clearing in the middle of, of a forest, you're going to say, okay, well, I don't want to stand in the middle of that open area. There's an enemy force out there trying to kill me. In a cityscape, everything is a danger area. Everything, you know, there's no way – urban fighting is like playing second base with a man on second with one out. You're, you're not just thinking about, well, if the ball's hit to me, I'm going to watch that guy on second, but I'm going to throw it to first. If the ball's hit a shortstop, there's a totally different job. It all The situation depends on how many men are on base and how many outs there are. Every person in your squad, in your platoon has a job, but those jobs are constantly shifting. And your focus as a leader is just to keep the kids, just constantly keep them focused on what's in front of them. Believe it or not, the thinking, you know, I, you know, people think that, well, in the military, you don't have to worry about math and you don't have to think. But all you're doing is doing math and thinking, you know. I mean, you've got to make quick decisions. 
I never thought that I would make eye contact or have a conversation with someone who I had to shoot. Mm. I, I never thought that the, the wounds that our guys would have in a close quarter battle would be bite marks or having tufts of hair pulled out. Um, no one goes into a close quarter battle and is uninjured. Everyone gets hurt because you're shooting semi-automatic rifles, automatic rifles, two, three feet away. You're going to get hit by concrete, by metal. You're going to get grazed. You're going to get burned. To get burned by a muzzle flash is one of the most insane things. I mean, these are, are things you just don't think are possible. But when they happen, it also, I mean, it's empowering because now you've gone through the gauntlet. You've been through the fire. And when you can turn the tide in a close quarter city fight, in a house fight, in a room fight, the littlest things can turn the tide of that fight. And it's all psychology. And, you know, you start showing the guys that are in that room or in that house, we're not going to stop until you're done. You start to see the confidence is gone. You know, one of the things that I think, unfortunately, in America, we've become too, you know, well-versed in is, is active shooters. And, and we know that police have changed their doctrine. When there's a shooter, you go after the shooter as quickly as you can. That's the opposite of what you want to do in a street fight. Uh, so if you, they want you to go after them because there's 85 traps that they want you to start running around and chasing them because they're going to hit you from another building. They're going to bring you into an alleyway. They're going to take your legs out from a bottom floor window. There are so many threats that are out there that everything has to be slow and smooth and communication has to be, be clear. And the senses that we use in, in close quarter fighting, you're hearing shot because everyone's been shooting and there's bombs going off and artillery going off. You can't hear anything. Oftentimes you're super tired and you've opened up, you know, a thousand doors and nothing is there. And so you get complacent and you start to maybe, you know, right off that Higgins boat, you're ready to go. But if you went for five miles without seeing a German, you know, you're not as, as motivated as you were when you first got off the Higgins boat. So your eyes are tired and you're hungry and you're, you're exhausted. The only sense that actually works all the time is your nose. And you can smell people. You can smell a person who's used the, the bathroom inside of a house. You can smell someone who spent the night without ventilation and they got morning breath or they have body odor. You can smell someone who's bleeding. And, and it reminds you that it is almost like you're an animal. You're, you're, you become almost like a caged dog going after another dog. And it's, a, it's the most base level of combat. Uh, when you're smelling and sensing and acting almost with animal instincts, it's super bizarre. Uh, but what does someone who's, what does someone who's bleeding smell like? Like copper pennies. Does that make sense? It smells mm -hmm. like, like pennies, like wet pennies. And you know, instantly if there's an infection, um, we used to, I, I was, you know, look at, I wasn't born in Mogadishu. I'm from Buffalo. You know, I'm not used to getting shot at and rockets. And, and so I got these kids that are, you know, young and we, 
we kind of went through things together where we would find like what what are they eating i i would need anything when when you're losing guys that you care about in the nature of the of a close proximity you you need a positive news story you got to keep the morale going and in garrison it's easy to do because there's there's reports and there's you know hey the marines over here did this and the air force is doing that and we're winning and we're doing well keep your head up but you would find that the morale came from seeing what the enemy was eating uh go into a building or go into an abandoned house and and you could tell like hey they're they're nervous they left in a hurry they're not eating well look what these guys are you know this is moldy bread and that's a fresh bite or you know this person has diarrhea you know, this guy used the, the corner of this room and look, look what, look what happened. He's not doing well. They're sick too. And they're scared. And then you start seeing the drugs. And one of the things that we dealt with a lot in urban fighting is, you know, you're going up against tanks and bombs and Americans and we're well-trained and we're not going to stop until you're dead. You're going to probably want to get high. And now you're dealing with people that are stoked in religious fervor and, and have their cause, but they're also high to Neptune. And when oh, you're and high out of your, on a plethora of things, mostly I intervenous, you know, you'd see like a spoon. We would engage people. I remember we had a couple guys that had to be medevaced because they got hit by a needle. They got pricked by needles that were in arms of people they were dragging off the battlefield. So, I mean, like that's, Again, chalk that up for, you know, you're going on antiviral medication in fear that, you know, you get a bloodborne illness from an IV drug user. But, you know, they tie off their arms. They'd have tourniquets on their arm and they're getting high. And and honestly, I could understand that. You know, I mean, you, you this you're, you're facing a, a division of Americans coming after you. So but when someone's high. And you're shooting them repeatedly. They don't act normal. So now you have almost like a. I I I would argue that the enemy in Fallujah was more akin to the Imperial Japanese than anything that we had fought, where they would do irrational things, and you think that it's irrational because they're, you know, their religion or they're hell bent on death, but they're really out of their mind. And they're not reacting to, you know, you're doing a magazine change on one guy and he's not going down and it doesn't make sense. Uh, they would take our equipment. And one of the things we use is for uh, chemical warfare, we have epinephrine uh, and antropine. And if you get hit with a chemical agent, you pop that in your leg, you want to keep your heart going. You know, uh, if you're going through a nerve gas. Well, these guys would hit themselves up with that before we went to war. And, <laughs> you know, it's just, it's like zombies at, at a certain level. But again, it, it's a, it's, it's, that might've happened in a firefight, but they were a mile down the road and you were in a vehicle and you engaged the enemy and you went to the, to the, the waypoint. You, that close quarter fighting makes you own everything you do. You, it, there's not a guy that just fell over a hill. It's not like Hollywood where they just tumble away and they're gone. You shot that guy, he dropped there, and now you're dragging him out. 
That's ownership. And it makes every, you cannot disrespect the enemy when you put someone down. It gives you a reverence for who we are as a, as warriors, but also who the enemy is as well. Wow. I have so many questions to follow up on that vivid description. I think I just have to pick up and remember, pick up where you last spoke and remember what you said earlier in the conversation. So, um, you know, we often hear it in crime. I've heard police officers talk about it. You know, um, a knife is an incredibly personal weapon that um, if you see someone who's murdered with with a knife versus a gun, you, you can more easily assume that it was a crime of passion in some of those cases because of the personality involved. And that's just basically what you just described to us, right? That your takeaway from that was so many things, but that you personally, whether or not, as you said earlier, you spoke with your enemy, you smelled your enemy. Um, and, and I know in your case, in some of these instances, how you had to kill your enemy, you came away with reverence because I guess you saw who that, you saw that individual, you saw that person. Yeah, I mean, don't get me wrong. Um, I, I'm not going to stop fighting the, the the people on the other side because, you know, we're at, this is my job, this is my oath. But these soldiers are, are like my children. So I, there's a love that causes you to keep pushing forward. Your allegiance to the people you're fighting with, your friends, your country, all of those things. But at the same time. Um, there's not there's not i'm not going to take a trophy i'm not going to i'm not going to disrespect uh the enemy because i know how hard they they fought and and i respect where they're coming from i respect who they are and if i can constantly keep focused on the fact that it's not going to stop me from from taking all of you down but at the same time there's that it's a weird respect and right. I, I don't, I, but I don't think you, you, are they Nazis? Are they ISIS? We want to compare enemies all the time as to evil. What is evil? You know, world war two fought us that taught us that we didn't have to be evil to fight evil. And the thing that I, I, I worry about today is we learned that we didn't have to be evil to destroy evil, but I fear that we've become an army and a military that doesn't want to destroy evil. We want to just kind of work with it, negotiate with it. Maybe they don't understand us fully. Hmm. There is an element and a, and a point where you can't, you can't pacify that. I yeah. mean, when you walk into Fallujah had areas where they were beheading people, they lost their electricity. They put those beheaded, they put those heads in freezers. And when they had no electricity, those freezers stopped working. And to, and to realize that Zarqawi chose an area of Fallujah that had a playground and a Ferris wheel and little tilt-a-whirls, a little amusement park in the middle of Fallujah, and that's where he did the beheadings. That he wanted children desensitized to the violence to be a part of that. I that's I it's out of left field. I, I have no I have no way to even track how a person could think like that, but that's what it was. And you got to pacify that sometimes by, by killing it. You know, in, in a, to the extent that you want to share with us your story, you know, I know you want the incident you won the medal of honor for, um, is a urban warfare Fallujah. Um, and 
I hope you'll, I know you will correct me anything I get wrong, but it was a building that you ended up clearing in a lot of the situations I feel like you described door after door, multiple guys, multiple levels. There's one particular incident that I think you, it may have happened more than once, but you, you talk about, you know, having to talk to your enemy, smell your enemy. Um, you, you ended up in a room full of propane tanks, um, didn't feel comfortable firing your weapons. So you had to resort to your knife. Um, that's possibly, I get as well, what, I mean, the Israeli uh, special operators and defense forces will have to do right here in, in Gaza. Um, you know, I, I, I listen to you tell those stories, David, and I wonder, like, how much of it is – you described instinct. You described um, – I'm sure some of it is training, right? I mean, soldiers always talk about reverting to their training. So I'm curious how much of it is instinct, how much of it is training, how much of it is uh, – I don't know, uh, just preparation versus – my base animal instinct. You know, all I could think of it is like, um, if you're at a graduation party and you're hanging out with your friends and the, your kids are playing with other people's kids and they're running around and all of a sudden you hear brakes lock up in the front of the house. Mm -hmm. You have no idea whose kid, if it is a kid, but you know that the kids are running around and someone just locked their brakes up and you hear those tires screech. Every parent is going to have the exact same instinct and reaction to run and check out what's going on. That feeling of your stomach, like bending into knots is a feeling you have when someone you care about is in a bad spot and when they're hurt. And so much of that fight is psychological where they want to leave you in the middle of a room bleeding out, knowing that I can't get to you. You know, the, the hardest part about close quarter combat is, is we're a hundred percent conditioned that we leave no one behind and I'm going to get to you as fast as I can. I promised you, I promised your wife, I promised your parents that I'm going to get you out. If you're injured, I'm going to keep you alive. I'm going to do whatever I have to do. And you have to almost rewrite that. Because I, I, can't, I can't get to you in a confined space. I can't get to you until the bullets stop. Hmm. So you're going to have to be really strong and, and really brave and really patient because it's gonna, we're not getting to you until everything's down. And it's tough. It's tough to deal with. And, and so sometimes you make decisions that aren't the best decisions, but they're all emotional. And we fight so hard to be disciplined. Everything in our society is wrong because of emotion. I, I actually hate emotional people with a passion. I can't stand people that are just all emotional, but that is really the only thing that delivers you. Um, hmm. We can have the best equipment in the world. We can have the best trained soldiers in the world. But if they're not fighting for a cause, if they're not fighting for each other, there's absolutely no interest. And that's, that, to me, is our superpower. And that's something that I don't think you'll ever have to worry about China, Russia, or Al-Qaeda, because what they're fighting for isn't anywhere near what what we fight for, you know? I, that I think is fascinating. I just heard a, heard a podcast the other day talk about this, David. They said, um, by the way, I have spent much of my life like you, where I, I think I over-indexed reason over emotion um, right. and, and did it purposefully considered it the right. tool of humanity for progress and that emotion is is um it, it, what i used to think was led people in the wrong direction i think i've tried to grow wiser 
actually, because I, I understand the power and purpose and utility and just human necessity of emotion. It's it's incredibly important. But I heard a guy talking about wars, and he's like, "Look, reason eventually fades away." Um, he, he was talking about the power of story and, and mm. mythology and the way it, it carries a people. It can carry a people through oppression. It can carry a people through a war. The, and it, it is that why you're talking about, right? Like ultimately, this is what I believe about me or my people, and this is what I'm here for. That sense of purpose. And that is not based upon reason. There is nothing there that is based upon reason. That is all um, deep emotion, maybe even deeper than emotion. It is like, I don't even know. Yeah, religion, but you you, you kind of sectioned off a, a, a portion of your religious enemy. I mean, look, those guys believe in their ideology, right? But there's, sure. something, there's something more. There's a mythology as well that is powerful. Well, well again, though, it, it, it the... If the basis of your theology is your death, it's not the same as the salvation message. I mean, Christianity is based on saving. It's based on preserving. It's based on love. And so what I came into war, never going to war, I was training for something I never experienced before. And I thought that I was, and I had so much anger over September 11th. I had so much anger over, you know, I remember like I was in country for like, I don't know, two weeks and there were these little kids and dad was a, a scumbag and making bombs and the kids were all kids and the mom was all scared and, and, you know, we've got reporters with us. And, and so I give these kids crayons and paper, you know, just draw something, be occupied. We got to talk to the adults in the room. And when we get done processing everything, the kids are drawing two planes that are crashing into buildings. Mm. And I was just like, what? I mean, no concept of your, this is fun. This is, I'm, I'm raising a generation to see you as an adversary, no matter what you do for me, no matter what you provide for me. No matter what kindness you show to me, you are always going to be an adversary. And I'm for, you know, uh, that that was just a, it's a, we, we use our Western philosophy against Eastern philosophy and it's confusing. But I used hate and I know what hate, I thought I had to fuel myself with hate. Uh, so when I would go on a mission and I knew there was going to be action and I knew we were going to get a fight. I would show my soldiers beheading videos and I would show the soldiers images of those people jumping off of the towers, that desperation, that this is what we're fighting for. This is who we're fighting and this is what we're fighting for. And if that doesn't fire you up, then you're in the wrong job. You should have gone to dental school because this is we're avenging. You know, we talk about preserving the Constitution, protecting America. We're avenging America. And and that was a job I never thought I would have in 1999. But here we are, and we're fighting Syrians and Jordanians, and and we're running around taking passports off of people from Chechnya and Bosnia, and we find this we find this guy with a passport from Dearborn, Michigan, and I'm like, you know, you came all the way out here. In a way, I'm grateful that you did. I'm I'm grateful that you didn't, you know, stay local, you know. But at the same time, that just, I couldn't imagine that. 
it was heartbreaking. And yet, in those moments, you know, hate is like nitrous oxide, where it gets you from point A to point B super fast, and then you blow your engine out, and you can't sustain it. You you can't sustain rage. It's we're, we're, your body can only take so much, and you have to fight for something stronger than that. And so, I really believe that it, my combat experience changed when I started fighting because I love things. And I mm. love my country and I love my family and I love my friends and I love my army and my love was going to, and it's so weird to say like, you know, why are you shooting at the enemy? Because I love my way of life and I love my family. Yeah. And it, that's, you know, it's awesome. It, it, but it, 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 it was effective fighting for love was what delivered us. I think, uh, take a quick break to say that you, um, also, as I mean, not just with my words, but decorated by the president of the United States represent America's biggest badasses dispels my stereotype of drama kids. Uh, Pete always talks to me about the fact that you're this so community thespian. Um, it's not even true. It's a, it's another lie. Really? Oh, no, well, it's, it's part of your image for me because he has said it so many times. You know, David is like a thespian. No, I've never. No, I looked it. I, it was a minor. I could have been anything. I could have been a botanist minor. It was a theater minor. And it was because I was, I just, I, I didn't me. I didn't know girls at all. There were all, these, it was like a club. They were all had like, you know, berets on. And whenever I look at some of these guys, you know, like in, in Hollywood and, and I, you know, want to explain their behavior. My friends and I will go, well, they were in drama. You remember the drama guys in high school? I'm not. I'm not yeah. <laughs> That's not. No, I, that's not I, you. I was, okay. Well, shoot. No. I was always like, well, hey, you, no, give the I, drama I'm guys so a little amazing. more respect. They win medals of honor. <laughs> no. Yeah. No. And they sent me to Broadway when I got the medal of honor, and I'm walking around like the cast of you know, uh, Kinky Boots, and you know, I'm like, why am I here? I don't. I'm not one of you. <laughs> what? They're all. You know. I'll take, that up. I'll take that up yeah. with Hegseth. <laughs> yeah. um, it's not your image. It's not, the, it's not the right brand. Okay, let's go back to – I want to tie this to current events as well. You and I spoke over the weekend. We talked about the, the fight in, in Gaza, uh, and you kind of um, said, I don't think Fallujah, in my experience, is the best analogy. But it's the best we have at hand. You, you, right. And you and others have said, look, Grozny um, – in, it's in Chechnya, right? Grozny, the fight in Chechnya. That's and, right. And then I've heard others reference Stalingrad in, in World War II because it's not just urban. It's rubble. Um, it's been destroyed already by aerial bombardments. It's full of sniper positions. In this case, in Gaza, it's going to have a civilian population embedded as well, and it's got a hostage situation embedded as well. So I would love it if you would apply your personal experience because, again – like, what do I know? And it, most people listening, I don't know anything. I mean, I saw Saving Private Ryan, you know, so honestly, when I saw, when I read your story, David, and I know you had to kill a man up close and personal, I think about that scene, private, Saving Private Ryan with a knife, you know? And so, we're, we're, and by the way, it sounds like you were alone, at least in that part of your battle. And so that's got to be a diver, um, a departure from the tactics of urban warfare. You, you got to be working in teams. Just tell us, like, Way, way it worked for you guys and the way it will probably work here in Gaza. So any valor award that you're going to see in the military is going to be a breakdown of military intelligence right. and situational awareness. You're, you, I, I don't, you know, 
you think there's two guys in a house, but there's seven. You don't expect that. And that's usually a bad things have happened because someone screwed up and maybe it's you, but that's where you get those outnumbered situations, not desired, not doctrinal at all. But you know, Grozny, we talk about Grozny. There's really three battles at Grozny, right? You got the world war two battle. You got the nineties battle. You got the two thousands battle of Grozny, right? Our, our military doctrine of urban fighting is broken into Berlin and Grozny. And those are two battles that Americans never fought in in World War II. Our experience and our, our tactics come from the Soviets and the, and the Germans in World War II. If you go to American history, you have Seoul, Korea in 51. That was a really bad fight. Communist Chinese in Seoul, Korea in 51. Way City, Vietnam. Uh, and, Vietnam and then and, uh, um, Mogadishu. And Mogadishu in, in, in uh, 93. So here we are. And we're now talking about the global war on terror. And now you've got stories all over the place. Marines, soldiers, Ramadi, Baghdad, Bakuba, Mosul. you got special operatives. Everyone has cut their teeth for 20 years on this stuff. And the one thing everyone is going to tell you is that you have options and you can make decisions on as to what you want to do. Do you want to go door to door? I open up one door, I go through it. The other thing is that when the civilian population's gone, you can get super creative and you can start shooting tank rounds through walls. You know, a tank round will go through five buildings. And when they're all next to each other, I don't want to use the front door. SEALs and special operatives love to blow C4, you know, on the side and go there. Do we want to go roof to roof to door to roof and mix it up? At the end, you just want to keep whoever is inside that house guessing. And the problem is, is that how many times have you been in your home? You, you live there or you're familiar with it and you know where everything is. And so we think of, well, I got to go into the front door. There's a living room, a kitchen, a bedroom, and I'm just going to walk through. However, there's a couch that they put right in front of the door. And the refrigerator that used to be in the kitchen is now right in the, in the doorway. And they took all these Jersey barriers and they put them inside the house and they built a bunker in there. And maybe the bunker's in the bathtub and there's a machine gun over a bathtub. It's, you're always, the, the victor is designed to be the defender because it's the first time you've ever been in that structure. And you don't know where anything is and, you know, there's no safe spot there. So, now you take all of that confusion and you put it in a tunnel. If this was 1944, Will, we'd bring a young man with a flamethrower and it would be game, set, match, tunnel. It's over. That's why we invented flamethrowers were for bunkers and for tunnel systems and Iwo Jima. You know, these stories of guys that just would go in there and just flame everything to, to a crisp. But we can't do that anymore. So the in an effort to be more humane, and an effort to be, you know, take the high road, our enemy doesn't care about humanity. It's the very basis of who they are as terrorists. And, and so we're in a much more difficult situation. Now, hostages, I think we've got to get to a real point where at, at least the IDF is having this conversation. I can't have young people with rifles thinking about anything other than putting down the threat. And we don't want to hurt anyone, and we certainly don't want civilians to get hurt, and we don't want to hurt our own. But the biggest threat 
in a confined space is symmetry of fire. The last thing you want to do is shoot your own people. And the last thing you want to do is shoot each other. But once a person is in a, in a, in a room and everyone's shooting from opposing corners, you've got to have some rules. And the rules are firewalls. Everyone, don't get ahead of me on a firewall. We're shooting in this direction. And, and anything on the other side of, of that direction is the threat. I can't have you turning because you, you think you see something around you know, your shoulder. So inevitably what happens is people start to reconnaissance by fire. They hear something, something moves, and they shoot at it. And that's another you know, really unfortunate part about keeping discipline and professionalism is if you have people just popping shots all over the place – you know, someone's going to get hurt. Someone's going to get a ricochet. But you cannot, the hostages, if they're alive and there's an opportunity to save them, do everything you can to save innocent people. If there's a civilian and you can save them, do whatever you can do to save those civilians. But if you go into any situation and on the other side of the door, you hesitate a nanosecond, you're in Arlington Cemetery. And not only are you in Arlington, but everyone who saw you get shot in the face is now at a combat effectiveness of negative 70 because they care about you. You're their buddy and you just got shot in the face. So my job is to constantly motivate young people that I'll do the thinking. You execute. This is the intent. I'll do the thinking. I'll take the responsibility. I'll, I'll be the one that goes to talk in a trial. Don't you worry about anything else. All you need to do is move forward and knock down targets. You can't be thinking about rescuing and you can't be thinking about civilians, unfortunately, because that's the OK Corral. And if you're the second one to the trigger, you're done. We're going to step aside here for a moment. Stay tuned. That's a clarity of thought that I can only imagine. I have to speak with humility, having not been in the situation that reflects reality. It's a, it's a clarity that reflects reality. It's easy for people who sit in the seats like I sit and go, you got to strike this balance. You got to save civilians. And you just described very clearly how, no, there's an objective and a mission, and that objective and mission has to be narrowly trained. And if it's not, you have compromised so many things, including other lives. And, and, and what it says to me, though, then, David, is if there is a hostage re- uh, rescue operation, it is definitely separate from the Absolutely. invasion force. That's its objective. Yeah, you have to know your lane. And I'm not a Navy SEAL. I'm not Delta Force. Uh, these guys are elite. They have elite training. They have different school, uh, skill sets. They have different weapon systems. I know what I do. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be the best in the world at what I do. And what I do is high intensity. And if you put 200 people in front of me, I'm going to do the best at what I can do. I'm not going to be a, you know, I'm not sneaking down the chimney and, and stealing someone's cookbook and getting on a helicopter and flying away. I'm not going to be on a bin Laden raid. I'm going to be on a raid with, you know, 55 guys that want to shoot me and my friends. And we're going to do the best we can to bring as many people home and retire as many bad guys. But if you're taking kinetic forces that are high-intensity trained and you're saying, you know, if you find a hostage, do whatever you can to save them, we're, we're absolutely going to do that. And if we can save civilians, absolutely, we want to save children and women and elderly people 
that's who we are. That's we're not murderers. We're not Russians. We're not Chinese. We're American fighters. That's what we do. But you can't anticipate that that's you can't think of anything other than survivability. It's all about survivability. And unfortunately, survivability means that the other side shooting at you doesn't survive. Um, I can't, you know, pick pinpoint shots and in a, in a tunnel system that you could barely stand up in. I mean, you're grazing fire. You want to shoot below the knee, right? Grazing fire means that I'm, I'm taking you out at your leg and down because I just want you on the ground. I'll worry about you once you're on the ground, but I need to get you off your feet because something's behind you and I want to get those guys off their feet. So I'm just going to put machine gun fire from your knee down and I want everyone running to stop running. And then we'll worry about Z patterning and, you know, taking them out. And, and that's what you do in confined spaces. And it's brutal. And it's, it's it, again, I, you know, maybe I should have gone to seminary. Because I, I would have felt more comfortable in that line of work. But I had a purpose on that battlefield, and my friends had a purpose. And, and America is safer and better because now a new generation of people just like me and my friends are out there willing to make themselves uncomfortable so that people can be safe and secure. And I think that's the most beautiful thing anyone can do for us, whether it's law enforcement or firefighters or or, or soldiers and Marines. They're out there and they're going to hook and jab so we don't have to. Hey, Dave, you talked about the fact that we don't use a flamethrower anymore. I think that's almost a symbolic. Um, it's not a symbolic point you're making because it, it has to do with the tunnels. But I do think it can serve symbolically as well. Because you also talked about, you know, modern politicians, this administration, modern warfare, that it is all compromised, that it's all it's all trying to strike, I guess, maybe too many balances, and that gets in the way of actually accomplishing an objective. I'm kind of curious about your overarching point of like, do you think we've gotten, look, we're more advanced in war, we're probably more professional as war fighters, but we haven't clearly won a lot of wars either. So like, you talk about all these compromises and balances, have we gotten better at fighting war? No. No, and and it, and it's, it's, it's sad because we probably have the best professionalism in our military than we've ever had before and i i go around and talk to soldiers and marines every day and I, it breaks my heart to say that they're better than i was but they are they're smarter than i was they they could do more tasks simultaneously than i could they have more training time they have more access to education than i ever did they're better they're better professional soldiers than i was and their leaders are all folks that want to we made a mistake when we got opportunity we wanted there's it all comes down to having a chip on our shoulder and you had a four-star general that had all this respect and everyone everywhere he goes everyone i mean a four-star general is like you know taylor swift they don't they don't do anything they have an entourage they people answer their phone they clean their house they're a four-star general that is the elite in the military. And then that four-star general goes to a cocktail party in Georgetown. And they're like, excuse me, could you get me a Diet Coke? It's like, who the hell are you? You make millions of dollars. I'm a four-star general. Like, you, you show respect. I'm Douglas MacArthur. You're just some turd. You're not, you don't know what I've done for America. You, you don't have the ability to be a four-star general. So 
we decided the only way to get the respect of of the elite is to go and take our four-star generals and take our captains and majors and send them to Princeton, get the Harvard education. And Harvard mm-hmm. and Princeton, they all wanted to say, hey, we've got tons of, of our graduates in the war. We understand that. We're very diverse. We love America, too. And so now all these generals come out of, you know, studying Ibsen and Bertolt Breck. And now we're like, hey, we're going to send an artillery barrage. And they're quoting, you know, a sonnet from Shakespeare. I don't I don't really want you well-rounded. I want you a subject matter expert at what you do. Those Princeton in order to be respected by academia, yeah. our officer corps became academia. And now we're like, oh, we've got transgender people running around. And now, you know, every chaplain is a Wiccan. And, you know, we're you want to do magic mushrooms on your off time, whatever it is. We're trying too hard to get respect to get respect from a cohort of people that have disdain for us. Wow. These people don't like us. They don't understand us. They've never been in a bad day, let alone their idea of confrontation is writing Twitter to say that Delta Airlines gave them cold chicken. <laughs> like that's, do you know what I mean? They're in their EVs and they're, you know, they, they tell stories of, of conflict of their time as a barista. And they're talking to people that have been multiply shot by Al Qaeda. And, and rather than us taking the high road, and say, no, shut up and sit down. Jack Nicholson and a few good men, that famous speech, we're not, we don't have those generals anymore. Those generals got the hell out. And now they're working, you know, and, and making money consulting. The people, we, if you are in the army today and you've got 30 plus years, you need to be in the army. And that, that should never be the, the answer. The answer should be that you have a purpose and that you're leading men and women and you're making men and women better every day and your leadership is, is bringing the standard higher. Our standard's not there. And it's, 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 it's political because we've a lot. I'm not pissed off about what happened to the army. I'm pissed off that the army allowed it to happen. That's what I'm upset about, that we allowed this cancer to grow is evidence that we never diagnosed what the problem was. And so people are like, are you ready to fight China? I could fight China by throwing a dart at a, at a rodeo. It, go take me to the Houston rodeo and I'll, I'll find people in the crowd and give them training and, and we could fight anyone in the world. It, it needs to be the military. It needs to be the people actually hired to do the job, not people that, you know, are here to find themselves. I didn't join, you know, like they're Kung Fu walking the earth. I wanted to see what I could do. No, join the Peace Corps to see who you are. We're here to defend and to fight. And we don't have that mentality. And But I'm telling you, we can fix it. We're going to fix it. It's what, took me to so fix. Long, what took me so long to have you on this show? I just all I can think of is I don't know why we haven't spoken before in long form. Pete, Pete Hegseth always <laughs> it always comes everything. back to that that Pete, bastard yeah. Hegseth. Uh, okay, uh, I, you said we can fix it. I'm not going to forget that you said that. I want you to fit that into one of the three questions I want to ask you before we 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 go our separate ways here today. And these are all going to tie into things that we talked about earlier. So as we we kind of broadened it, 
I'm going to start narrowing it back down. So the broadest question first, it will it will tie into we can fix it. Uh, we start out talking about my sons and you and I meeting at West Point and so forth. Would you send your sons to West Point? No, I would not. But I, but that's just because I don't want my sons to be officers. It, at West Point, I think it's a great institution. Um, I just don't. I, I I want my I want my children. All my children will serve their country. If they do it in uniform, I'd be overwhelmed and proud. Um, but the idea is that we have to serve America first. How you decide to serve America is is totally your call. I hope you do it in uniform, and I hope you do it as an enlisted because enlisted is truly the best way. I don't want to be judged by what I did in combat. I want to be judged by what my subordinates do in society. And my soldiers are outstanding citizens, mm. and they're amazing husbands, and they're great fathers, and they're out there employing people, and they're out there helping people, and they're making a difference. They're making America better by their presence. And so we need to be judged by what our subordinates do. We have to be eclipsed. As leaders, that's the ultimate compliment is to be replaced. And in the enlisted ranks, I found that that was the most fulfilling way to do it. But fit that into how we fix it, because, you you know, I said I want you to bury that in. How do you fix the the, the American military? We got to do a good old fashioned goose pile on the ignorant and weak. And right now, I think the left is empowered. Uh, The left is empowered uh, through academia. I think the left is empowered through the very tactics that they allege to, to, to be against, the bullying techniques. Um, and, and so what we have to do is just truly outnumber them. And, you know, occasionally, you know, you think you're the only person, you put the campaign sign out uh, and everyone rips your campaign sign up. Well, don't put the campaign sign out, but make sure your candidate wins. Okay? You know what I mean? Like, like the way that you're going to fix the military is by sucking it up, and becoming an E1 private and having every officer talk to you about gender awareness weekend and then making the rank of non-commissioned officer and say, you know what, I'm never doing that. And hey, LT, you're 22 and you listen to your NCOs. You see Captain uh, America over there telling everyone about gender studies and uh, reminding him that uh, America is failed and America can change and America should be a, a better nation. Don't be that captain. And you change institutions from the ground up and you do it by having more decent, honorable people than you have knuckleheads. I don't need to teach diversity and you know what inclusion is? Inclusion is leadership and diversity is the law. If a black person applies for a job and is qualified and I say no, I get sued by the federal and state government. That's the law. And inclusion means you're a really bad leader if you're not including people. So I don't need your your government anything. I treat people with dignity and respect in the military, not because I want to get promoted. I do it because I want to win wars, because I want people under me that acknowledge that I'm a good and decent leader, and I'm honest, and I have integrity. And we beat the left because we there's more of us than them. And we just have to be empowered to take our institutions back. But and you know it's what? Not I, a violent thing. I, you know what I love it, about your prescription for the military? It can be applied to America. Your 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 prescription to enlist and rise to the level of an NCO who rejects the the political leadership above him. It, it reflects something that I see something more. A lot of people compromised. You know, 
sometimes based upon weakness and want to join the group, sometimes based upon the ideology, but often because of their own personal ambition. And I, would, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't be surprised that a lot of those LTs or captains agree with you, but they go along in service of their own ambition to rise up to the level of general or whatever it may be, where as an enlisted, you're going to rise to an NCO. That's as high as it's going to be, but you're empowered to make a change from that level. And what I'm getting at is I think that exists in society as well. If you yeah. pursue your own ambition to, to the almighty dollar, you're going to compromise a lot. You're going to compromise a lot. You want to be a captain of industry, you will be compromised. It's a fact. That's what you think all these CEOs and American corporations believe this crap? No, they don't. They, they, no. they believe in their own ambition and they're doing the realist of what they have to do. So choose a different path, young man. Choose a different path where you don't have to compromise, but you can still be a leader and still effectuate change. It's so funny, but but I see this on the right wing as well. I, I went to an event where where Anheuser Busch was like paying for all this stuff for wounded warriors, and uh, the Anheuser Busch people got on the stage, and everyone's like, "You suck!" You know, like you guys are horrible. You put a transgender, and I thought to myself, before there was the situation with Bud Light and the commercial. Anheuser-Busch was taking care of wounded warriors. They were making sure that everything about their product was America, America, America. And so they get hijacked by whatever reason they decided to run that ad. But now you're not even allowing redemption. There's no redemption arc. And, you know, why does the radical left embrace Hamas? Because ultimately they have the same goals in life. And, and the goals are that you, once you err, according to us, you must be destroyed. And, mm. and you know, the Christianity arc is you screwed up, but you're still able to be forgiven and you can still repent and have your road to Damascus moment. Mm -hmm. None of those things exist in a, in a culture, in a society that says your sin, your life is over. And, and and the right wing does it as well. When I was in the military, we would fight about our sports teams. Mm -hmm. We knew we cancel each other's vote out. We would talk about, we, I mean, debates over the Confederate flag. Uh, guy has a Confederate flag. He's from the South. Black guy from Chicago is like, what are you doing? You're a racist. You're a redneck. You're, you know, you're this, you're that. We're going at it. All of a sudden, the radio chatter, someone's got hit with an ID. That fight over the Confederate flag turns into people punting on their gear, going into a four-hour firefight, cleaning weapons, and we go right back into it. And now it comes down to, what, 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 how could we find consensus here? Do you need to put a flag out there that's going to upset people? Now, do you need to play your music so loud that it upsets people? We're finding consensus out of necessity. Mm -hmm. Because we have to live together. We have to respect each other. We have to fight together. Now, in no time in the fight over the Confederate flag or the music or the language or the words that were said, did anyone talk about not fighting for each other? Mm -hmm. that, was a, that was an automatic given. So in the civilian world, I have to like you before I trust you. I go on a date. And I want to know that this person's a quality person. I have to earn their trust. I have to, you know, I like them. I get their trust. And then I love them. And the military, everything is reversed. I don't even like you. I don't even have to like you, but I trust you. 
Mm-hmm. I trust you. And I trust you. And because of that trust, I know I have to depend on you. And I know you'll never betray me. Everything else after that is a giant cherry on the Sunday. We have to get back to that trust with each other as citizens. And that starts with realizing we're in this against the world. And there's a lot of people that want to kill us. And whether you want to be at war, I don't want to go to war. I don't want your kids to go to war or my kids to go to war. But if an enemy is saying that they're at war with you, they're at war with you. You either win the war or you ignore the war. But you don't have license to run around and talk about barbarians and savages if you don't want to fight it. Second question, as we narrow the scope down, you said there are two main battles, Berlin and Grozny, that people study to come away with their lessons and plans for urban warfare. What is yeah. the main lesson from those two battles that, will, that you applied and that will be applied by the IDF? Uh, so asymmetrical fighting uh, and, and a basically uh, understanding what, what terrain is. You know, we're, we're traditionally fighting, you know, I took the hilltop. And I took the hilltop and I used the hilltop and I put my indirect fire on the hilltop. There is no hilltop. If you're not standing on a building, you don't own that building. So we're talking about ways that we have to move the enemy off the the area. And you do that by a, a concentrated force of combined arms. Every road that is an actual road in Gaza will be IED'd. You can't use those roads. You got to make your own roads. So here's the deal. There's going to be a Gaza rescue plan that is going to rebuild Gaza. Just like in Ukraine, everything that you want to fight in in the urban terrain is going to have to be rebuilt. So you want to move people out and you've got to move them by, by forcing the fight into certain sections of the area that you can isolate the civilian population from the true believers. Now, if it's the tunnel system, that's that's not bad. Separate innocent people from the bad guys. Once you've isolated the bad guys, fix the bad guys and try to take out as many as you can conventionally, because ultimately you're going to have to go in there one by one. But it's not about occupying terrain. It's not about holding terrain. It's about choking off, cutting off. And it's a war of attrition. Hmm. It's a war of attrition. Last question, David, and this is the tightest scope, but take us back to the top. It may have been your first answer to me today. You, you said something that I remembered right off the bat. You said, war is hell, and you lose a part of your soul. We then transitioned yeah. to talking about what you gained. We talked about the witnessing of love. We talked about what you know about humanity that I don't know. We talked about what you've seen. We talked about tactics and what you did and earned you the Medal of Honor. Um, but I have to return to that. What did you lose? What part of your soul did you lose? I lost uh, the sense that my imagination of what the worst possible circumstance could be, um, there was a sense of innocence that, well, a helper is going to come, you know, and, and if I call 911, other people will come and they'll shuffle me off and they'll handle the cleanup, they'll handle the mess. And I don't ever have to worry about what things look and smell and taste like. Uh, and now I realize that, you know, we really have to do that for each other. And there's really no escaping it because I don't, I don't think I understood shame until I understood that there's a, there's a need to be the person you say you are. 
you know, it's all great to talk to talk and I can make you think I'm the greatest person in the world, but only people that know what is actually required of us as individuals. And I don't mean this as combat veterans. I mean, this as men and women, adults, adults are the people that evolve to the point where they know it's a fun party, but someone's got to clean up after it. And it's a fun party, but someone's got to buy the food and prepare the food. Those realities to everything that we have in life, the combat experience is if you want to be a part of a solution, if you want to be part of a generational fight, if you want to be a part of enjoying your liberty, there are things you're going to have to do in that struggle. And once you go through it, you are going to be forever changed in the sense that nothing is, you can't sit out any fight. You can't sit out any struggle. You know, why are so many veterans involved in politics? Because now they're active. They've got skin in the game. And the more people, and this is what happened in World War II. This is why you had 1948, so many veterans were in Congress. You know, well, you drafted all these people. They didn't talk about their combat experience, not because they were living in a Victorian age. They didn't talk about their combat experience because everyone experienced it. Mm. There was no point. What, why should I talk to you on the bus about Iwo Jima? You were probably Guadalcanal, or you were probably at the Bulge, or you fought in North Africa. Everyone had consequence to action. Everyone understood what service was. And once you go through that, you're like, I, I can't be the, the person on the sidelines focused on the Buffalo Bills all year round. There's got to be more to yeah. life. And that sucks because there's a lot of people that love life playing pickleball and drinking lattes and worrying about when the next PS6 comes out. And I, and, and I think there's times that we, we'd like to do that too. But the combat experience, I, I think service in general, it focuses you that you are now compelled and rooted that um, this America is fragile. And what we have is we've got a lot of people manipulating democracy in the name of democracy. And, you know, the idea that somehow if you disagree with me, if you have discourse that is, is uncomfortable to me, that I have to use the very powers and the very institutions, we have to protect our liberty to limit your opposition to my point of view. This is dangerous. And, and it's, it's un-American. And so now what are we supposed to do if we stand up and say, I think you're lying about this, or I don't trust you as an institution, you might be accused of being an insurrectionist, or you might mm -hmm. be accused of being a radical. And if you want to get together with a bunch of your veterans uh, and, and shoot guns in the state of New York and raise money for charity, you might be a militia. That right. sucks. But you do it anyway, because you know what right is. And once you've seen people die for what right is, for what the ethical, honorable thing to do is, you can never, ever deviate from that. It's almost like saying you're a born-again Christian. The, the moment you say you're a Christian, everyone wants to question every time you use profanity. I thought you were a Christian. Like, dude, you've got like seven ex-wives and you do drugs. I'm the one that says I'm a Christian. Now you get to judge me, right? You get a target on your head. And that target is accountability. And that part is forever changed. Uh, and your innocence is gone. And you know what people are capable of. And it, and it makes you sick. But it also empowers you to go make a difference.
Man, I was going to say something about the Dallas Cowboys beating the Buffalo Bills twice in the 90s, and that's our golden era. You're hey. my age group. But then you went ahead and said, I can't think about sports all year round. And you know, Daryl John- Johnston's from Buffalo. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Now he lives he in Dallas there. and he played for America's team. I mean, that's true. But listen, I tell you, that, that got me ready for war, too. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> you know what? Can I tell you? I, I got out of the army and I got to meet the Jones family. Oh really? And I was I was so prepared uh, to to believe that the Jones family were going to be like communists. I was hoping that they take me aside and be like, you know, Al Qaeda has a point of view too. <laughs> you know, I wanted I wanted I wanted them to be like evil and just horrible human beings. And I was so disgusted to find out that they are the most patriotic, pro-veteran, like decent. What a wonderful group of people. And you had to stop hating them for beating you twice in the 90s in the Super Bowl. I, the <laughs> Dallas Cowboys organization is a class group, and they're great Americans. They really are. So but are you, man. Are awesome too. The Bills are awesome, too, and you're in a good position yeah. with your quarterback. But I just wanted to end yeah. on a light note, but I do want to say how much I respect you. I think it goes without saying, and uh, how much I appreciate what you've done for this country, what you continue to do for this country. The wisdom you shared with us today, I think, is something that everyone needs to hear, and I'm, I hope that they, they do and they share this far and wide. And I really appreciate you um, you doing that for a better part of an hour today. I hope to Thank talk you, to you man. again. All right, man. All right. Look forward to it. Take care, Bye. David. All right. There you go. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with David Bellavia. Again, check out his book, Remember the Ramrods, an Army Brotherhood in War and Peace. And I hope you share this conversation far and wide. I'll see you again next time. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. And Amazon Prime members, you can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. Cudlow on Fox Business is now on the go for podcast fans. Get key interviews with the biggest business newsmakers of the day. The Cudlow Podcast will be available on the go after the show every weekday at foxbusinesspodcasts.com or wherever you download your favorite podcasts.